Welcome to Kids Gone Global, a community podcast brought to you by the International School of Hamburg, Germany's pioneer institution in international education. I'm Sarah Reich, your host and the school's director of community relations. In this series, we explore how this international school helps its students hone their skills to become global citizens who can thrive and engage fully in our interconnected and ever-changing world. So what are these 21st century life skills? Together, we will explore the dynamic landscape of education and uncover how schools are adapting to prepare students for a global society. I have the privilege of engaging in conversations with students and experts in the field of international education and childcare. Through these dialogues, we aim to expand our understanding of educational practices in a globalized world. Welcome and enjoy the show. Today, we are all digital citizens. What happened online matters, and how we react to these events has real-world implications. Meanwhile, our children are growing up in this digital space. So how can we teach them to navigate this online world safely and responsibly? How do schools go about teaching students to be digital citizens? For this episode, I've invited Laura Jakubowski. Laura is the International School of Hamburg's Technology Integration Coach and a real trailblazer on digital citizenship education. We want to know how she helps students from a young age build up their digital skills and help them to engage confidently online. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Sarah. I attended one of your parent workshops on digital citizenship, and I was struck by the breadth and the depth of your teaching program in this field. But before we delve into that, how did you come to working in this area? So that's a really good question. I was originally a teacher in school in New York City. I began teaching in 2011, and I've always been interested in the development of the whole child, especially because I didn't start out my career in technology. I was just a regular classroom teacher. And what I did do a lot of, though, was integrating technology in my classroom. So I was spending a lot of time with students and their devices. We were working one-to-one with those devices. And I believe the school I was at first had a pilot program with Google and with Apple, where they provided devices to our school through a grant. And then we were using Google Apps in 2011 before they were what they are now. So I was really often seeing students who would really get talented at what they could do with the technology and what they could what they could create but also would struggle at times with how to use it and so I think that for me that interest peaked there and from there I got the opportunity when I was here to develop a curriculum for the International School of Hamburg and the junior school to help students with those skills in digital citizenship. How would you define digital citizenship as an education program? Yeah, it's a difficult one just because there are so many words out there, so many buzzwords you hear. You might hear words like digital literacy, digital learning, media literacy, and digital citizenship, the one we have chosen to use. And I tend to think of digital citizenship as the one that I would most often want to focus on for us because the digital part is using a set of special skills with technology, and then citizen is being a part of a community. And ultimately, when we're sending students into the world as adults, they are a digital citizen. They begin from a very young age as someone who is living online, (laughs) and 
then they continue and it doesn't stop. So I think that for me, digital citizenship encompasses that idea of really helping a child through their experience with technology and with their digital experiences online as a whole child. We see many challenges with our digital lives popping up in the press regularly related to safety, cyberbullying, media literacy. What topics are you trying to address with your students? We want them to feel like they can proceed in a way in which they are not limited by what they know or limited by stranger danger. They feel like they really understand the tools that are there the the risks, but also the benefits, and can move forward in a way in which they are empowered. So I wanted students to really get in our school preventative care. So starting young, so we start with digital citizenship in the early years three program. So that's students who are five and six. And we get them to a point where by age 11, 12, that they are understanding and ready to go into the secondary school here with a, a good set of skills. And when we talk about how we go about it, we have 10 concepts that sort of are interwoven concepts into digital citizenship that we build and tier from grade level to grade level. For example, I'll give you the 10 concepts. The 10 concepts are... Responsible use, media balance, digital identity, data protection, positivity online, online community, using and sharing information, intellectual property, news and media literacy, research skills, and growing up online. And the idea I wanted with that scope is that I wanted the students to start thinking about themselves first. So, how can I be responsible? How can I be safe? How can I find balance? How can I protect my data? And then from there, start to ripple effect out to see where am I now that I'm doing something online? Where are my actions affecting someone else? So that's where you get to positivity online and your online community. And then how can I ultimately affect the wider world? So when we get into research skills or using and understanding information or media literacy. You're getting into those ideas of how are we sharing and disseminating information from person to person and is what we're doing safe and responsible. Really starting with the self and then going out from there was the concept. So an example of this would be for data protection, right? Let's break out that specific concept. So in our very young ages, so EY3, that's age five or six, we're teaching students to in those lessons, make sure that they are careful about what they're putting online. So we use a digital portfolio platform and we talk to them about what is okay to post on that to their parents. That's the, the information goes to their parents. So it's not going very wide, but they get a chance to think about, okay, maybe I shouldn't send that photo to the platform that my parents will see it on because on other child's in it. And I don't have permission to put their photo on my portfolio. In grade one, we expand upon that and talk about where are safe places to go on the internet and why we should protect our information when we're there. In grade two, we get into the concept of what a digital footprint is and 
how that is something we need to keep safe. We need to be careful about where we're putting our information. So expanding upon grade one. Can you specify what you mean by digital footprint and its scope? For sure. When I say digital footprints, common sense media would identify that as all the information online about a person either posted by that person or others intentionally or unintentionally. I think of that as information that you might give to companies, either given or collected when you're going to a website, information you share. So things that you post, like things we post onto Facebook, Instagram, and other social media, or information that your friends and your family share. So when your friends and your family say, sure, you can have Facebook, all my contacts, they're giving away your information (laughs) to a company. The other thing that I've been chatting with some of our older students about is that there are some ways out there in which it's very easy to find people's information. So one example I gave to some students is there's a TikToker called Jose Monkey who can find people based on their location in a video or a, a photograph. And the students were shocked by this. This is a grade five class. And I didn't direct them to TikTok. It's not appropriate for them to go there. But the idea and the concept to them that if I post a photo of where I am to a social media platform, they can understand, yes, someone might be able to find me from that photo if I tag the location or if I put, if it's a really obvious location. And that is, that's sharing your digital footprint. And that's you sharing it, not necessarily a company having it. So that is for managing their own online privacy. How do you go about teaching them to protect their friends' data online? Luckily, Germany makes that a bit easy. There are many laws in the EU and in Germany in particular that have to do with where and who has access to your image or your data. And so I will tell students what the law is. And then we will talk about why the law can be so, quote unquote, strict, because if your image is on social media or is posted somewhere, that doesn't mean it's the only place it will end up, right? It could end up somewhere else. So for students to understand that concept, one one quick example I'll often give is that I have a friend who lives in Colorado, who has an Instagram, or had, I should say, after this, she stopped, but she had an Instagram for her child. And I I was praising it in the sense when I was talking with children about it, because I said, it's a very closed situation. The child is only shared with friends and family on Instagram, the pictures that are being posted by the parent. And I said, what do you think? Would you want to, from birth to your age now, would you want your parent to post your image? And a lot of the students said no. And they explained why. So having these conversations with students and getting them to think about these things in real time can be quite powerful because they themselves have a sense already because they are already online. They have a sense of how they want to be online often. Do you find that digital citizenship education helps students to grapple with complex concepts such as universality? So, for example, the notion that if you post once, it's out there forever. It, it can be. I know for, in particular in our grade five classes, we do a really interesting lesson on where your digital footprint goes. In grade five, we have a lesson where they are casting a reality show called Truth Be Told. This is a common sense media lesson, by the way. And the lesson is 
they are casting directors. And luckily, I used to, to work in this field, so I can give it a little bit more context for them. And they are trying to cast a reality TV show. And they're looking at people's social media to see what's publicly available and the information this person has posted. And if it's true, if this person was being truthful or lied or what kind of information they're sharing and how that can impact whether or not they'll be casted. So it gives them a chance to see in an experiential activity and through conversation and looking at social media profiles. So getting that real world chance to look and see they then make decisions about this person's future based on what they see on their social media. So I think it's a really powerful concept that they can understand if they are given the tools and the empowerment to do it. We see in our information age that data veracity is an ongoing quest and media literacy has a major part to play in sustaining a balanced public discourse. We also see the consequence to society and individuals when it's not managed properly on social media. How do you approach it through your digital citizenship program? Sure. So in junior school, back half of that curriculum is a lot focused on media literacy, on research skills. And to be specific to what you were talking about, which I think you're getting at, knowing if something's real or not, knowing how to understand the information you're receiving and if you can trust it. And we talk about that in a lot in grades three, four, and five. In, in grade two, they're still building the understanding of research. So we're still focusing on those skills of what research is. But we do talk a little bit about plagiarism, getting them to think about how they're using the information. But in grades three, four, and five, we have very targeted lessons on what you're looking at might not be true. How can we look at a source and see if we trust that source. For example, in grade three, there's a lesson called Is Seeing Believing, where they're looking at images that have been doctored and trying to figure out if those images are real. Then in grade four, we expand upon that when we have a few lessons that are focused on don't fall for fake, meaning that, okay, you in grade three looked at doctored images, which is a very, again, experiential lesson. So they really remember it when they get to grade four. And in grade four, we take a look at, would I trust various sources based on what I know they might know about this topic? For example, one of the, one of the examples we give is, would you ask your grandmother for soccer playing advice? <laughs> Maybe you would. Maybe your grandmother is absolutely amazing. Maybe she's Megan Rapopoe. But <laughs> for a lot of kids, that is a pretty clear icebreaker for us because then we go and expand upon that. But they can figure out, oh, yeah, I might not necessarily trust that. Who would be a better source of information? Maybe a soccer coach, maybe a, a PE teacher. And so we start talking about sourcing. And for me, that's really close to my heart because I began my career as a history teacher. So I was talking, I was in the weeds of talking about primary and secondary sources and talking about primary documents and are there biases. So we do get into that as well in grade four. And then in grade five, we expand upon that even further and we say, okay, we have a bunch of Instagram posts here. We don't call it Instagram though. We might call it, I think, <laughs> Instagrate. I don't know, something that's not the actual Instagram. And the students go in and they see these posts and they're assessing the posts to see, okay, we're trying to see if this is a, an accurate image. And the whole concept for that lesson is around the saving of endangered species. 
And we ask them about the first one I do is about the Northwest Pacific tree octopus, which is that it's famous, very famous internet hoax. Another one I've used in the past is the spaghetti tree. So that's a BBC hoax as well. So these are two very famous hoaxes that are meant to show the quickness with which false information can spread online. And so the students being first exposed to this don't know this. We would know that a spaghetti tree is not real. We would know that a Northwest Pacific tree octopus is not real. But students don't know this. And so when they see the tree octopus, we will have a debate about do we think this is real? And that's the opener. Again, I'm the opening icebreaker. And then from there, we have them look at and say, okay, what would be convincing to you? What would be convincing in these posts? Would it be a name that is convincing because the organization name, do they have, and this is a little bit more difficult now because of the state of things, but do they have verification? So that's been somewhat muddled now because of some changes to the technologies and the company's use of verification. But that used to be a great indicator for making sure that you could trust a source or at least trust that it was a real, true, verified person. And we get into, okay, what's the language? Because even in grades as young as second grade and third grade, they're learning about persuasive language in their literacy uh, lessons. So we talk about persuasive language and how that can move us to believe something. Urgency is another big one as well. So we do have these quite impressive, I think, chats, the students about how to examine these things and think critically about it all. What do you mean by urgency? Do you mean when there's an ongoing crisis or situation being reported live? I mean it in two ways. So in grade five and specifically, we'll talk about urgency in terms of, yes, if we're getting information quickly, it might not be the most accurate and verifiable information because it is something that's often, as we know, if, with news outlets, They're just trying, or well, more so on the ground outlets. They're trying to get information out first and fast. And so speaking with students and letting them know that you often need to wait to have a measured take on something is important. And the second way I'm thinking about urgency is we do talk with them about phishing and scams because it is something that in the junior school, we do have some safeguards in place in terms of how they use the technology. But when they go on to secondary school, they're using their own device. And so they have to start using it on their own. They might be able to email out of the school to other people or have received emails. And students will talk about get their parents getting scammed. This is what's fun about my classes is that the students often have tons to share about what their parents have gone through. <laughs> Just know you've been given fodder for a story in class. That we've handled it respectfully. But the scamming and phishing that people come up against, I want these students to be prepared to know what that is. And so what I mean by urgency there, roundabout way of thinking about it, is that the urgency is often part of the play when you're in a phishing or a, a, a scam. The, that's one of the modes in which they try to get you. <laughs> so when something seems urgent or something seems harmless, you're more likely to click. We're all struggling with screen time and particularly screen time for our children. How do you address that in your program? It's a very complicated thing. I think personally, if I would speak for myself, and I think I could speak for other adults, we struggle with it too. We didn't grow up with the technology. We weren't given tools to know how to manage ourselves with it. And we 
sometimes they're flailing for how to manage ourselves. So I think that for children, it's an even bigger concern then because as adults, we can see our screen time use. And I look at my phone and I say, oh my gosh, I spent so much time on my screen this week. Oh no. A child sometimes doesn't even have that concept running through their head or that fear like we do because we know better. We know that it's a concern and something that we should be monitoring. So for a child, I think I like to start with feelings, noticings, and wonderings. So it's a very common education concept, noticing and wonderings. But what I mean there in terms of media balance is getting a child to think about, okay, I just sat in front of the television for 20 minutes. How do I feel? I sat in front of the television for 30 minutes, 40, an hour, two hours, four hours. How do I feel? And a student can, or a child can usually convey, oh, I probably feel tired. Most often they'll go to, my eyes are tired or my body is tired or lagarthic. They don't use lagarthic though. That was me. And they are able to say, I might need to move around. I might need to stretch. So I think we do a really wonderful job here in the International School of Hamburg of teaching children mindfulness and teaching them concepts that will help their well-being. So I try to bake that into the Digital Citizenship Program. And honestly, the Digital Citizenship Program is part of our wellness curriculum in the junior school. So it's already a strand of that. And once they've been thinking about their feelings, how they feel in their body after using technology, what they notice and what they might wonder about that, then... I also, with the older students, get into tracking their behaviors. So how am I using the technology? And then marrying that with how do I feel about that? Is it a good choice that I made there? And that is also complicated because good choices can look different for different people. So actually, in a fifth grade classroom this week, we were talking about media balance and we were talking about how for me in the morning, the first thing I do when I wake up cannot be to look at my screen because it will immediately cause me stress. Or at the end of the day, I know that I need to give myself two hours before bedtime and from screen time because I get too excited about whatever I'm watching. And I'm very honest with the students about my own habits and my own routines because I think it's important to get them to start thinking about their routines. In that same fifth, fifth grade classroom this week, they were writing out their technology use throughout the morning, the day, afternoon, and the evening. And then after writing it out, we had them look at those various different things they were doing and say, okay, how do you feel after each one of those things you do? And is that a choice that's good for you? Is playing games right before bedtime good? And for some students, they were saying, I realize maybe playing games right before bed isn't good, but it could be a good way to wake me up in the morning because I'll start to feel energized. And we also were talking about how do we know when to stop? How do we know when is enough time? Maybe we might get sucked in the morning and we can't get ourselves ready to go home or ready to go to school to be ready to learn. So getting them to talk that through and walk that through with, with myself and with other teachers in the room is really helpful because they can compare themselves to their classmates. What works for me might not work for you. What are the ways you like to wind down in the evening? 
what's the right time then to use the technology? So we focus on when, how much, and what is it that we're doing? In grade two, we have a lesson we're doing right now about uh, device-free rules. So yes, safety is one. So when you're crossing the street, when you are driving, students are very quick to understand that that is a time in which you shouldn't be looking at a device because you have to focus on something for your own safety. Then we get into respect. So are there times in which I need to show someone else that I am respecting them and their time and that they're talking to me? So, for example, if I am a parent who is talking to a child and trying to get their attention, that the respectful thing to do would be to close the device. And that's a very common one we deal with a lot in the junior school and we teach them a lot. So one of the routines, just to pivot wildly for a moment, in grade in EY3 that we teach is to pause, to breathe, and to finish up so that they can focus their attention on the teacher, focus their attention on the adult who is trying to speak with them while they're using the technology. Another way we do that in the older grades, so grades three through five, is we teach them to put their computers at 30 degrees <laughs> so that they can focus their attention back on the teacher. And then once the teacher has given their instruction, they can go back to whatever they were needing to do for the lesson on their computers. Going back to grade two, though, two other places that they might need to focus rather than be on a device would be a time when you need to have concentration. So students identified that this week as when we're reading. Maybe we shouldn't be trying to watch TV and read at the same time. And then sleep. So getting back to your original point, a really simple and easy routine that I've talked with children about a lot that is a very quick one for them to understand is putting your phone into another room away from your bedroom when you're going to sleep. And children can speak really well to how distracted they get if they're trying to watch something while they fall asleep. And in that same grade cl two classroom this week. So what do you see the biggest challenge for your students per age group? You start with them very young, around five, and they leave you there around nine or 10. Are there particular struggles or challenges per age or even per gender? I think for young students, the biggest struggle is exposure to media that's not appropriate for them. And for some boys in particular, gaming can be a quite early struggle. And if it's used in a way in which it's used with a parent and it's a bonding activity, that can be really powerful. But if it's used in isolation, it can often isolate students. And I think that getting back to the exposure of media that's inappropriate for them that goes back to how do you feel after you watch that? We have had instances in which students have told me or told their teachers in these lessons that they watched something and it was very scary. And so we always fall back on what was the context for watching that? Like, how did you like why, like why and how did you get access to that one? But two, when you do watch something like that, because ultimately it, it might happen. As a child, as a young child, I watched something way too young that I shouldn't have been watching because my parents <laughs> did not monitor me. And so I think that talking with the students about it and talking about being able to keep an open dialogue and conversation with their parents and their family members and their guardians can be really helpful so they can speak about what they've seen. And theoretically, like as a family, that can open a dialogue for what is and isn't appropriate for you to watch or you to see and why. And students might not want to understand it, but they do understand that. 
the biggest stress test with screens is very much when we hit teenage years. Yeah. Uh, you prepare them in the years before. Mm-hmm. How do you see that influencing their teenage experience? So when I was speaking earlier about younger students, I was really speaking about nine and under. But once you hit nine and older, the interpersonal relationships that are being conducted online are what is the um, struggle for students. And I think that continues into the older preteen and teenage years. So something that's so interesting to me, I was having a conversation with a parent very recently at school, and we were talking about how for these children, the way that they conduct their friendships can very much be online, where if so-and-so doesn't like my post or doesn't like my stories, then we might not be friends anymore. Why aren't they liking it enough? Or the, the thing I liked that this parent used was that the, the child's looking for validation. And I think that's something that we need to remember is that we are human beings looking for connection and looking for validation. And that's something we can build upon with technology. But when it becomes the sole source of our connection and validation, then that becomes scary. And for a child who is growing up in the age now where so much of our personal relationships are conducted online, how do we navigate that? How do we sit with a child and tell them this is not the end of the world that that she didn't like your social media post? To them, that's not the case. They feel that is extremely important. And giving them the platform with you to talk about it, I think, is just the most important thing. Having open lines of communication about this kind of thing can be the difference maker. Laura, you emphasize how important meaningful connections and validation is to young people, and this is increasingly happening online. When these go wrong, students can face cyberbullying and mobbing. How do you go about addressing these issues? So it's, again, such a hard thing to address because cyberbullying is bullying, but expanded, right? So one of the things that can be quite scary is that it can be bullying in your pocket and you look at your phone to receive a message and you receive instead something else that's much worse. So I think that for our children in the junior school, we focus first on teaching them to be kind with their words when they're online. Um, the two concepts that are running and interwoven into the digital citizenship curriculum are the positivity online and the online community. When we talk about those two concepts, we are getting students ready to use technology responsibly, but also kindly and specifically in their communication with other people. Um, one of the things that we've always maintained, even though we're focusing on technology use, is that it's very difficult to fully get the context for what's being said unless you are face-to-face, that context can be lost, feeling can be lost, intention can be lost when it's something that's said digitally or typed through text or maybe a digital communication or an email. So that's where we begin is just getting students primed to be kind. But to focus on cyberbullying specifically, We do address it in grades four and five. We have the students think of it from many different angles. So why would someone bully? What is the underlying driving force that would make someone choose to cyber bully? What is the victim going through? 
what might their experience be? So getting them to think empathetically in the situation. And then lastly, and unsung heroly maybe is the bystander, because quite often cyberbullying doesn't happen. It can happen one-on-one, but quite often there's other parties that witness it, in it, whether it be in a group chat or the victim talking to their friends about it or the bully talking to their friends about it. There are people who can speak up and say that it's not okay or help in the situation, the victim in the situation. So for a bystander, when I talk with the students about this, there are lots of options. So it might be that you stand up to the bully. It might be that you speak to your family members about it or your teachers about it or perhaps someone at the school about it, the principal or head of school. Are you comfortable perhaps reporting the behavior online, maybe in the reporting feature function on the app or the gaming site? Giving students the context that they have many different options through which they can be be an upstander, be someone who is standing up for the victim is really important. The second part of that also being letting students know that as the victim, you also have a lot of options too for how to get the help you might need. So for us, we know that the technology is simply amplifying behaviors that already exist and are out there. Bullying is something that has existed for a long time. And the really scary part, again, is that back when you and I went to school, perhaps you would get bullied at school. You would get bullied maybe at a social event. Not to say that is okay, but what makes it worse now is that you can be bullied in your own home because your device is how you're connecting with your friends and family and you don't have control over when those messages come in. So as the victim, maybe your options are blocking. Maybe your options are talking with your family members about it, talking with your friends about it, talking to our counselors about it. So one of the things we unfortunately have to teach is resilience and now resilience online. So that's something, that's why we think it needs to be something we teach in our curriculum is because it is such a a tenuous topic and something that is relevant to them, unfortunately. We are really careful with how we approach it and how we help students understand why and how and what might be happening. But then also, I think, just to plug maybe some of our other services at school, our counseling services, we have a lot of very good qualified people who can speak with the children and help them understand these experiences they're going through and grow through them. You've referred to what happens online at home. Parents are from a different digital generation than their children today. Do you have any tips on how parents can support their children to become confident digital citizens? Yeah, I think that the parents are in a really tough situation right now. There was a 2020 study out of the Pew Research Center called Parenting Children in the Age of Screens. And a lot of this data came out during the early pandemic. So some of it might be more relevant to pre-pandemic times. But they said that more than nine in 10 parents say they have a lot of responsibility in protecting their children from inappropriate content online and just monitoring their children in general. And they were comparing this to what's the role of technology companies, what's the role of the government, who they felt had much less of a, a role in this. And I think that's something that is definitely worrisome and we grapple with, less so in the EU than the United States. And this data is coming from the United States. 
But I think something that all parents feel, if I could speak for all parents as a non-parent, <laughs> is that they feel this pressure and this, this worry to get it right with their child, that they might screw up their child if they aren't getting everything perfectly right with um, how they approach the child with technology. And I think that it's important for us, for a great place to start, because that is a very pressurized place to come from and a scary place to come from. You might want to start with modeling. For the parents, they can show first, by going first and showing first and modeling good behaviors with the technology, the children can learn from you. I didn't say it before, but when you asked about what are the struggles students have with technology that I see, if the students were to answer that question, they would say that me it's media balance and it's their parents' media balance. <laughs> the most common thing I've heard from EY3, so that's grade um, five years old, all the way to the 10, 11 year olds, is that the parents are the ones who maybe aren't paying enough attention to them because they're on their devices. So I think that may not be the case. I don't want to say that's the case, but that's how the children feel from when, from talking with them. And I think that when we model these behaviors, it's really powerful, especially from a very young age. If I were to sit and say how to model this, obviously coming up with routines and habits and setting the standard for the family is a really good place to start. Just like we need routines for brushing our teeth, washing our face, waking up in the morning, eating breakfast. We need routines with the technology. They've just become, it's just the devices have become so ingrained into our lives. They have to have, we have to have habits built around them. We have this eternal question at home, which is when should we give our child a mobile phone? <laughs> yeah, never? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> So there, the same study from the 2020 Pew Research Center said that roughly three quarters of parents don't think it's okay for a child under 12 to have their own phone. And I think that makes sense. I have said often, and we've talked about this in our parent workshops, that a lot of age-restricted related things comes down to a child's ability to self-regulate with the technology and their maturity levels. There are some 16-year-olds, I wouldn't want to give a phone, but there are some 12-year-olds I might feel more comfortable with that just based on their emotional and technological maturity. The interesting thing, however, when we get into phones and social media is that, and I'm, I know I'm pivoting slightly with social media because that goes hand in hand with phones often, but in Germany, we do have a law that kind of prohibits us in a way where children are not supposed to be on social media if they're under the age of 16. They can be on it in the sense that the child has to have a parent who has the logins and is able to monitor the use, but the law in Germany is 16. In terms of phone, though, however, I think that the natural age I would want to say would be when they're going into high school. So that 14 age is probably the age in which I might feel more comfortable as someone who's seen a lot. But at the same time, I think it does come down to maturity, really, and, and where you feel that your child is on that spectrum. So you've been a keen observer in this field for a couple of years now. Do you see trends in how the children interact in the digital world changing? Yeah, that would be if I ever had to have a tagline for, for what I want children to understand is that technology 
can be scary. It can be frustrating. It can be distracting. But when used well, hopefully we're using it to continue to build meaningful connections with the people around us or the people who are not around us who we miss, specifically to us in our international community. We live in a global community where the children that we are raising and we're working with every day, they are they're interconnected with people who live in Asia, who live in the U.S., who live in parts of Africa. Like They have to be online, in a sense, because they have friends, they have family they want to connect with. And so I think that teaching children that there's a difference between mindless scrolling and what a researcher I had heard once on a podcast called Science Versus called Social Snacking. There's a difference between social snacking, mindless scrolling, essentially, and chatting with your grandma before bed and having a bedtime story. That's, that's a nourishing meal, right? That, and using the technology to do that. Maybe playing games with a friend who lives far away now and you're chatting with them while you play. That's another good use of technology. And I think if we can teach children to really focus on making these meaningful connections with people you miss, people you love, people who are even maybe around and keeping the technology to do that's the most powerful use for it. So no matter the platform or medium, it's about keeping meaningful connections. Thanks, Laura. We covered a lot today and I, for one, will now go and pay more attention to my digital snacking habits. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Kids Gone Global brought to you by the International School of Hamburg. There is a reading list available for this episode and others of this series on our website. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.